0: Good morning. Today we're going to be in Revelation chapter 19. And I like to refer, well, refer briefly to some of the chapters around chapter 19. So if you like to see that in front of you, feel free to have a Bible open to Revelation 19. If you have one of the Bibles with black binding around you, I believe that's page 1039. You don't need to have that open, but if you'd like to, feel free. I want to start by asking... What do you like to do when you have time off at Christmas? It could be a number of of answers. Sometimes we see family that we often don't see the rest of the year, and that can be really good to reunite with them again. Or there might be particular foods that you really look forward to, or games that you get time to play at Christmas. I like all of those things, but another thing that I really like is I love watching good movies. Uh, Movies have been a point of connection for my family forever, and I also just really love a good storyline. Sometimes, though, I love movies a little bit too much. I remember one summer when I was a kid, um, I heard there was a movie coming out at the end of the summer. I saw the trailers months in advance, and I thought, that is going to be an awesome movie. At the same time, I was going to church every Sunday, and I was learning about Jesus, and I was hearing how I should have my focus on him, and how Jesus could come back at any time. And I remember that summer praying a prayer that both amuses me and kind of shames me at this point. I remember turning to God in prayer one time, and i saying, Jesus, I am so excited for you to come back, and I want you to come back. But could you just wait until I see this movie? I am super excited. So at that point, I had my priorities completely mixed up. I was distracted from what really mattered. I had asked God to take a back seat while I enjoyed something that was flashier, more visible, and took a far lower level of commitment. Now, you may have not asked God to delay the restoration of all things for the sake of a movie. (laughs) But we put things in front of God all the time. We have activities that seem more enjoyable or things that feel more urgent in this moment or things that feel more manageable in our own strength. And we prioritize those things over God. And anytime we are prioritizing something over God, we are worshiping that other thing. Our lives are filled with temptations and with distractions that lead us to worship something other than God. And St. Augustine calls these disordered loves. What's wonderful about the book of Revelation is that it helps us to get our priorities back in the right order. It reveals some of the main distractions that have tempted humanity throughout the ages, but then it also shows the grand sweep of redemptive history and points out what really matters. Throughout this book, John is spotlighting God's supremacy over anything else that could distract us or vie for our attention. So in this passage particularly, we'll see three things, three aspects of God that attract our worship. So first, we worship God, the saving judge. Second, we worship the ready bridegroom. And third, we worship the welcoming host. So we'll talk about saving judge, ready bridegroom, welcoming host. Let's focus on the saving judge. Verses 1 through 2 says, After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. We're dropping into the middle of the story in this passage. John the Apostle in this book has received multiple visions from the Lord, and they show glimpses of God's plan of redemption throughout history. As Pat has preached through this series for the past several weeks, we have seen that there are a lot of images and symbols in this book, including beasts or creatures that stand for particular people or for societies in general. At this point, you might start recognizing some of the symbols that we've seen and that pop up several times in the book. For instance, John talks here of this multitude that is crying out in praise of God. And Pat has shown us in multiple chapters like chapter 7 and chapter 11 that there's this gathered assembly in heaven that is glorifying God as he acts in history. They praise God for his power and for his worthiness to rule. And as we are spectators reading this book, we have to wonder what, what is God doing with his power that is attracting this worship. Throughout Revelation, God restrains evil and he restores justice. Verse two also shows us that God has judged someone called the great prostitute. What is that about? If we back up to chapter 17, John sees a vision of a prostitute in colorful, extravagant clothing. She has the name Babylon, which is the name of a nation in Israel's history that conquered Israel and oppressed God's people. Now, in Revelation, this word Babylon is used as a symbol. In chapters 17 and 18 that describe this prostitute named Babylon, you can see several references to Old Testament prophecies. And a lot of the prophecies that describe either this woman in chapter 17 or God's judgment of the woman in chapter 18 refer to or echo prophecies that talk about God's judgment against enemy nations that have totally rejected him. Some of the cities that have similar prophecies include the cities of Edom, the city of Sodom, the city of Tyre, the historical city of Babylon, even Rome, and even rebellious Jerusalem at times when the Jewish people rejected God. There are prophecies that echo all of them. So Babylon, this term here in Revelation, is encapsulating the idea of societies that live without God and reject his rule. Babylon's used as a symbol. This woman or the society is wealthy, successful, and all the kingdoms of the earth trade with her and enjoy material success. Now, at first, this idea of helping nations prosper doesn't sound like a bad thing, but the description goes on. She's described as a woman filled with abominations and drunk on the blood of God's saints. We read in chapter 18, verse 24, it says, In her was found the blood of the prophets and saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. So this figure is powerful and influential, but also brutal and is killing the people of God, actively targeting them. She is shown as the prominent powerhouse on the earth. Now, she's also shown riding on a beast that has seven heads and 10 horns. If you were here last Sunday and you heard Pat talk about the Christmas dragon, uh, the, the dragon in that section is a representative of Satan. And the seven heads and ten horns are symbols of power. Now, in a similar way, this beast, this other beast, also has seven heads and ten horns, which in biblical literature stands for power. And shows that this is a powerful society that worships Satan in some way, whether through idolatry or through worshiping human achievement, and they're worshiping these things rather than God. What we see in these chapters is a contest of powers. On one side, Satan is luring people to follow him and his kingdom. On the other, God is restraining and opposing the beast from his own throne in heaven. People are in the middle. We are left to look at the two kingdoms and live as members of one or the other. Revelation is forcing us to ask ourselves this question, which kingdom do we follow? Like Pat pointed out earlier, we have a section called life as worship. And what we have to realize is we are worshiping all the time. That moment on a Tuesday afternoon where you are supremely frustrated by something. It's helpful to stop and ask, what am I worshiping? Which kingdom am I saying is in control right now? And we have to ask ourselves that question every day. Now, often we try to dodge the religious nature of this question because we would much rather just set up a third kingdom, ours. We think, well, humans can find ways to fix our own problems, from Adam and Eve trying to be like God in the Garden of Eden to the rise of humanist philosophy during the Renaissance to the motivational speaker Marie Forleo, who declares everything is figureoutable. Humans like to be masters of their own fate. Now, to be clear, God has given us abilities and capabilities to live out the roles he's given to us. For instance, we can use our God-given intelligence to find answers to some of the technological or medical problems we face today. We can use discernment to find better, more responsible ways to care for our planet or to connect with our communities. But what we often try to do is we try to shrink every problem to a bite size, I can handle it size. What happens is we completely distort reality with this view. What we do is we see that we inflate our own greatness we ignore our limitations, we deny that many things are outside of our control, and we even defy our need to rely on God. So no wonder we're distracted from God, we're frantically looking for answers, sometimes scientific resolutions to every problem, and we're not willing to bring in our need for God's saving power to a situation. Often we, are, we sometimes declare humans as basically good and call for people to be kind, while we run into evil in every society that continues to persist. We often are not willing to recognize our need for God. And Revelation shows us that our enemy is greater than our own strength. So any personal kingdom we set up falls prey to the kingdom of Babylon. We get entranced by these promises of success that she brings. We have to recognize our desperate need for another kingdom to save us. Now, in this passage, God leaves us with no question as to which kingdom is superior. Babylon, meaning the kingdoms of the world that don't follow God, are overthrown in one day. Just before chapter 19, the city of Babylon is destroyed and there is smoke coming up from the ruin of the city. God acts with judgment to stop the violence and tyranny on earth. God acts because no one else can overthrow this world's superpower. God acts to free the kingdoms of the earth that are beholden to the woman known as Babylon. God acts to free the people of God who have not followed her and have been destroyed as they've been crying out to God for help. God sees our need and steps in as the just judge who says, enough, enough. He overthrows the evil that's far more powerful than our own strength, and he delivers his people. Now, what should be our response to God's judgment? We see in verses one and two that the response is worship. The multitudes of God cry, hallelujah, which means praise the Lord. We have to understand that many of these gathered people before God's throne have suffered directly from the tyranny and oppression of Babylon. This is society that has resisted God and his followers. Now, fortunately, this can actually be a little hard for us to picture because in the U.S., we haven't had a literal dictator. But we have many stories, even from the last century of history, of people who've experienced relief from oppressive rule when it's finally overthrown. You can think about V.E. Day at the end of World War II and some of the scenes of celebration as well as just open weeping when there's been relief and deliverance. You can also think of moments like when the Berlin Wall was torn down and the celebration and relief that came to many people. To go from afraid for your life every single day to free is a change that brings rejoicing. Now, what we've seen even from those historical examples that is that in our world, when a dictator is beaten in one corner, there are other dictators that come up in other countries. Human sin continues despite our best efforts to set up good societies. But God is bringing this change of justice to the entire world. He is promising that He will restore everything, and there will not be a return of the oppressor. Verse 3 says, The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. This image refers back to a prophecy in Isaiah to show an enemy people of God who are soundly conquered. God is echoing that prophecy to show that he will one day put an end to all oppressive rule, and he will tell evil enough. Our response should be one of comfort and joy and celebration. With that understanding, it makes total sense for God's people to say, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Now, when we see people in our day who are living under oppression, We want God to bring this relief. So as you think about people or countries who are living under oppression, pray for God to bring relief and worship him as we see him bringing justice into our world. Now, the defeat of evil pretty much sounds like the end of the story to me. We have to ask, what's going to come next? If there's no evil to resist, what is God going to do and... What are we going to do? What happens is God invites us to be a part of his fully established and reigning kingdom. So the first event of this fully established kingdom is a wedding. The next part of the passage shows the second aspect of God that attracts our worship. Second, we worship the ready bridegroom. Look at verse 7. It says here, the multitude cries out, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. In chapter 5, the symbol of a lamb is a symbol for Jesus, the one who is sacrificed in order to save his people from their sins. It's clear from the evil seen in Revelation that sin is a corruption that has to be destroyed. But instead of destroying us because we sin, Jesus came and paid the terrible price of sin. Why does Jesus do this? God is clear throughout scripture that he doesn't save his people out of some sense of obligation, but out of love. What a beautiful image for Jesus' care for us. He saves us from our sin. He conquers evil forces that hurt us. He clothes us in his own righteousness, wiping away our own mess. And he makes us his beloved bride. In our passage, we have this contrast of two women. First, we heard about the great prostitute or the society set up against God. And we had this extensive description of her clothing, her power in the world, and her oppression of God's people. Now, we meet the bride the people who persistently follow God. What's she like? For now, we can be shocked by the simplicity of her description. In verse 8, it says, It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So instead of colorful and showy and opulent clothing, we have simple linen similar to that worn by priests in the Old Testament, those people who are set apart as holy to go into the presence of God. These clothes are described as the righteous deeds of the saints. Now, while this includes what we do in response to God's kindness, this bride's finery isn't limited to the good deeds we can motivate ourselves to do. In this passage, it says, it is granted her to clothe herself. These clothes are given to her. Jesus gives us his own righteousness. Now, as we become like Jesus, we also will live in ways that align with his character in our day-to-day lives. These acts done in response to Jesus's freely given righteousness make up the most beautiful thing a person could wear. And Jesus is giving that to us as his bride. Marriage is a really fitting description of our life with Christ. When I got married, the ways I lived life changed in some dramatic ways. So instead of running my own schedule and hanging out with friends whenever it suited me, I now made decisions knowing that my first loyalty was to my wife. I needed to include her in my decisions and how I spent my time and how I interact with others. Now, some things stayed the same. I continued working the same job. I was a friend to the same people but my life also expanded in a lot of ways. Some of Abby's friends became my friends. Some of her holiday traditions became my holiday traditions. I also spent more time with Abby than with any other individual. So our lives shift in major ways when we marry someone because we love them and we're bound to them in beautiful ways. Does your life show that you are bound to Christ? Do your priorities show that you are the bride of Christ? Do your decisions put him first? As we think about how we spend Christmas or make New Year's resolutions or spend time with work or family, remember that our identity and our decisions should first show our loyalty to Christ. Consult him in your decisions and show your love for him. Remember that God gladly shows his love for us. He loved us first. He included us in his plans for the restoration of the world. And he brings us into his home and his heart. This brings us to the last thing, the third aspect of God that attracts our worship. We worship the welcoming host. Look at verse 9. It says, The angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So we've already seen the defeat of the oppressive kingdoms, and in their place we have this victorious Lamb who will rule with power and justice. He reaches out to his people in love that's displayed at a wedding. Now he invites his people to come to the wedding and enjoy the feast. Now we might ask, okay, how can we come to the wedding as a guest? we're also the bride of Christ. We have a couple of metaphors that are mixing here in this scene. Author Michael Wilcock comments that we have here two images for the people of God. Now the bride stands for God's people as a whole, not just Fountain Square Presbyterian Church, but churches throughout the globe and throughout the centuries. All together, corporately, we are the bride of Christ. Now this wedding invitation alternatively recognizes our individuality. So God doesn't imagine us as nameless cogs that just disappear into some greater wheel. Instead, in this instance, he's inviting each of us to share in his kingdom and in his celebration. God's kingdom is a place of flourishing and justice and love, and he's inviting you. Now, in the midst of our day-to-day demands, we get distracted from God's invitation and we lose sight of his justice and his power over all things. Instead, it can feel like we are holding off ruin with every extra hour at work, with every deadline that we meet, and sometimes even with every load of laundry that we finally complete. And in this busyness, we can forget that God is in control. He will bring about the restoration of our fallen world, and he invites us to be members of his restored kingdom. As I close, I want to give you two challenges for this week. So first, this week, as you feel distractions and demands crowd your thoughts, I invite you to push back. Speak the gospel to yourself. God is freeing you from the temptation to take on Godhood and have to fix everything yourself. He's also freeing you from the temptation to lean on other power sources that are promising you salvation that it can't deliver. Instead, this week, rest on God's strength and on his power. Second, I want to invite you to take a moment to think through the people that you know. Think, through, think about a person who right now has the weight of the world on their shoulders and it feels like they're carrying everything. Go speak the gospel to them. Remind them this week that God is with them and is for them. Remind them that God will bring our world to a glorious ending. And in the meantime, God will not leave them alone. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful that you care for us in the midst of caring for all the world and all of time. You love us. And you've shown this care through justice and through love and through welcoming us. I do ask that you would help us to lean on you this week. There are so many temptations. Please cut through the noise and the distractions and help us just sit at your feet and learn from you. And love you back. In Jesus' name, amen.